Hey, can you open your Bibles to James chapter 1? I'm going to read the first nine verses. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes, to Jewish Christians who have been scattered abroad, scattered through persecution. My brethren, writing to believers, count it all joy when you fall into, notice, various trials. They are custom made. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect. The idea is complete, lacking nothing. And if any lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea and driven is tossed by the wind. For not, let not that man suppose that he will receive any from, from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, and he's unstable in all his ways. So from time to time, uh, members of the congregation, friends, colleagues will come to me and say, Pastor Bob, I've got a great book recommendation for you. Uh, read this in one day, it'll change your life, it's awesome. And I'm kind of a sucker for that, so I get my iPhone out, I go to the notes section, and they're like, okay, tell me what it's about, because there's certain genres I like. And then I say, okay, now give me the author, because there's certain authors I like. So as we begin the book of James, we're going to apply the same thing here. There's only a hundred verses in James. If you read it all week, you could probably memorize the book. It's like a long newspaper article. And yet we're going to be here for eight or nine weeks, all the way to Christmas. We're going to be in the book of James. And if we're going to commit that much time and energy, I think we need to know those two things. What is the book about? Who is the author? Now, let's talk about the author, and there's always someone a little super spiritual to say, well, I thought God was the author. Didn't God write the Bible? Well, yeah, God inspired men to write the Bible. You all know that, right? No one's afraid of that. The scripture says that holy men of old wrote as they were moved by the Spirit of God. One of the most fascinating studies you can un ever undertake is how God used the human instrument to write the Bible. By the way, he uses the same thing in evangelism. He uses you and he uses me. He could use angels, but he uses us. And he uses us to preach and we are his hands and his feet. So, so we need to know the author and there are three possibilities. The first possibility is the apostle James. Now, he's the brother of John, the John who wrote the gospel and the book of Revelation. Together they were called the sons of Zebedee. Remember they were fishermen, the sons of thunder? There was a day in their ministry where they saw disciples who were doing ministry different than Jesus. Remember what they said? Uh, Lord, holding babies is nice. We kind of like that, but isn't it time to call fire down from heaven? You know, we read about Elijah and we're kind of into that kind of thing. By the way, you can get ministry done that way. It's effective, it's simple, it's fast. Uh, Jesus said, no, that's not what spirit we're of. And so uh, that's James and John. There's no evidence it's that James. Then there's James the less, okay? Hopefully no one called him that during his earthly ministry. Uh, he's less because he's less than the James that was the brother of John. There's no evidence he's the writer. All evidence points to the fact that this is James, ready? The half-brother of our Lord Jesus. Now some of you are thinking, wait a second, isn't Mary a virgin? Yeah, she was a virgin before Jesus. She's not a perpetual virgin. Uh, so many scriptures bear this out. Probably the one that you might want to write in your Bible 
is Matthew 13. Now, remember the Christmas story, Luke chapter 2? Uh, the angel comes to Mary, and, and the wording by Luke is very accurate. He says, the angel comes to a virgin. It's very important. Betrothed to a man named Joseph of the house of David. All the genealogies are in order here. Her name is Mary, and the angel says, you know, you found favor with God, and you're going to conceive and bring forth a son, and his name shall be called Jesus, and he'll save his people from their sins. Uh, Mary's question is very pertinent. She says, how can this be? This sounds miraculous, because I have never known a man. Now, I, I love these scholars. They all have all these PhDs. And if you have a PhD, look, that's amazing, okay? But I love these scholars who say, well, a virgin's not really a virgin. It's really a young maiden. Well, then why is she asking the question, I've never known a man? Sounds like a virgin to me. So there's a miraculous thing involved here, and the angel says, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. The power of the highest will overshadow you, and therefore the Holy One to be born will be called, not the Son of Man, not man's son, but he will be called the Son of God. Now, this is important because it fulfilled two prophecies. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, where God said it would be the seed of the woman. It was always the seed of a man. It would be the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. And, of course, you all know the Emmanuel prophecy, Isaiah 7, uh, written 700 years before Christ. Behold, the Lord will give you a sign. A virgin will conceive and bring forth a son. She shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Mary was a virgin, not a perpetual virgin. In Matthew 13, Jesus has been off in his ministry. But he comes back to his hometown, and he's in the synagogue, and the people are blown away. And they're like, what? where did he get this wisdom? Isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this Mary's son? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Now, they're not down on Joseph being a carpenter. Uh, they lived in a different world than you and I lived. We all want our children to do better, right? But in the ancient world, if your dad was a fisherman, you were a fisherman, and your kids would be fishermen. You're lucky you had that. If you were a carpenter, your kids would be carpenters. It's just the way of the world. And they're like, he's never sat under a rabbi. He didn't go to Hebrew University. Where did he get this wisdom? Isn't Mary his mother? And get this, and aren't his brothers here? And James is named first. And usually it was birth order. Josie, Simon, Judas is the author of Jude in your Bible. Are they not all with us, even his sisters? You can look at Mark 3, Luke 8, John 2. I mean, many places in Scripture. So the family of Jesus was at least five siblings. Now, what in the world was growing up in that house like? First of all, you got your older brother who every, everybody idolizes who never sins. He doesn't spill milk. He doesn't talk back. He gets all A's. I mean, who can live up to this, right? And what was table talk like? Did Mary talk at the table about, you know, the, the night in Bethlehem? Did they sing Silent Night? I mean, what was the deal? What was going on? And we think, oh my gosh, they had an inside track to knowing God. And yet we find out in John chapter 7, it says his brothers didn't believe in him. Can you imagine that? That does away with all those myths that, you know, Jesus as a little toddler was fixing wings on birds, all these books that are written, in, and he went to India as a teenager, and pre, you know, that stuff is ridiculous, right? Isaiah 53 says there was nothing about him that we would desire him. 
You know, Judas in the garden said, the one that I kiss is the one. You know, he didn't have a halo. He didn't look like Christopher Columbus. He wasn't European like all the artists make him out to be. Jesus was very average. He grew in stature and wisdom with God and with man. And it's amazing how they could grow up in this household and not believe. And they say, look, it's the Feast of Tabernacles. Go to Jerusalem. Come on, put yourself out there. They probably heard all these stories. But they didn't believe, and it really reveals the truth to us. Proximity and where you were born and who your parents were, what religion you were born in, has absolutely nothing to do with faith. It really doesn't. And it has everything to do with a God who loves you and has called you by name and has found a way for the gospel to come to you that you either accept or reject. Everyone chooses their faith. Everyone's born into something, and then there comes a time of choice, even if you're born in a Christian household. No one was closer to Jesus than Judas. No one was farther away than the Philippian jailer. And salvation is a wonderful thing, and if you're a Christian this morning and you know Christ, God weaved a wonderful tapestry to put you in the seat you're in now, and you should be overjoyed by that. Salvation is a miracle. But we find out later that his brothers did believe. So what brought them to believe? The same thing that brought you and I to believe. Uh, you don't need to turn there, but I'm going to read you from 1 Corinthians 15. Where Paul says, I deliver to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now, he writes this first, but he's going to tell us about Jesus appearing to them post-resurrection. But he wants us to know first, this was according to the scriptures. Isaiah 53, the book of Zechariah, all through the Old Testament, there was this idea of one who would come and die, the one who would be pierced, the one who would take on our suffering, the suffering servant, was according to the scriptures. Why is that important? Look, experience is amazing. No one can ever take my experience away from me, my salvation experience. But my experience doesn't help you. That's why it's got to be according to the scriptures, the Old Testament for them at this time. Peter said, when we made known to you the coming of our Lord, we didn't deliver to you cunningly devised fables, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter said, I was on the Mount of Transfiguration. But that's not enough. But we have a more sure word of prophecy. We can point to the word of God, and it was according to the scriptures, but then he gives the experience that he was seen by Peter, then the 12. That's logical. After that, he was seen by over 500 at once, of whom the greater remain at the present. You can go talk to them. But some have died. After that, he was seen by James. There it is. Then by all the apostles. And Paul said, by me. Next place we see James is the upper room with Mary. He's mentioned there by name. Filled with the Holy Spirit, we see him in Acts 12, and he presides over the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. Why is all that important? Because he begins this letter by saying, James, a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He makes no ties to the flesh. He makes no ties to knowing Jesus after the flesh, but only after the Spirit. 
It's almost like John in the book of Revelation when he sees Jesus unveiled for who he is. You know, he's undone. He falls at the feet of the angel. It's like Isaiah when he saw the Lord high and lifted up. He said, I'm a man who's unclean. I dwell with people that are unclean. And anything he knew about Jesus after the flesh is all gone now. And he said, I am a slave. That's the translation. I am a doulos, a bond slave. Now, slavery in that day had nothing to do with ethnicity or color. They were bond slaves. It was economic. You were willingly made to be a slave to a person of your own choosing. And James says, I choose Christ as my master. It's not according to the flesh, according to the spirit. Now, he made it difficult for scholars because we had to dig around and figure out who this James was. This is the first letter of the New Testament written, the last to be added to the canon, but that's okay. So that's James, our author. What's the subject? The subject pops out to me in verse 4, where he says, Let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. God wants you to be complete. Well, the word is whole. You know, we are fearfully and wonderfully made, aren't we? We are very peculiar, very strange. We are, there are so many compartments to us, emotional, physical, our will, our mind. I mean, we're a very interesting group of human beings, very complicated. Uh, husband and wives know that, right? Very complicated. And therefore, God says, I want to bring wholeness to your life, completeness. Not perfection, it's the idea of God making us one, like feeling right in our own skin. Someone once said the two most important days of your life is the day you were born and the day you found out why you were born. And that's a lifelong process. And knowing Christ means to come into wholeness. One of the things, I guess one of the reasons I pastor is I feel very, a very heavy burden for people in churches where they hear one side of the gospel. God only wants to heal God only wants to deliver. God only wants to do this. He only wants to do that. And there's never a wholeness. There's never a completeness. I think what James is writing about is real faith. Real faith. Not nominal faith. Not carry your Bible. Not I was born a Christian. James is saying, man, there is a real faith. I knew it. I grew up with someone. And now he's Lord. And real faith changes things. So the next eight weeks, we're going to look at real faith drives right through trials, comes out the other side. Real faith conquers the destructive patterns of our lives, addictions and uh, all kinds of things that you and I have been delivered from. Real faith doesn't show partiality. That was our whole Compassion Weekend. It doesn't show favoritism. It doesn't uphold the rich over the poor. James is going to say, if you read my letter at the end, you will prove to yourself if you have a real faith. Now, how do you prove if your faith is real? You're not going to like it. We've already read it. He said you have to count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, and when patience has its perfect work, you will be complete, lacking nothing. Isn't that a bummer? Isn't that a bummer? James is actually saying, you don't even know who you are until pressure comes. Now, I dabble in coaching a little. You want to know my coaching philosophy? Put pressure on the other team. Press them, blitz them, 
Do you know why? Because Mike Tyson said everybody has a strategy until they get punched in the face, right? So, so here we are today. We're Christians, right? This is wonderful, isn't it? We're reading the Bible. We love God. We just sang. Probably get a cup of coffee after. Here's the problem. This is the huddle. This is practice. That's all this is. It's practice. But when you walk out of this door, you're going to get punched in the face. And then you're going to find out where your faith really is. So everyone in this room is in three categories. Number one, you are smack in the middle of a trial. Really are. Some of you are coming out of it. You're like wiping the sweat off your brow like that was a rough one. But man, praise God, I'm coming out of it. And then the third group of people, uh, you'll go into one at some time. That's just the way life will be. I was reading an article one time that said, my job, pastoring a local church, is one of the highest stress level jobs there is. It's number three, uh, right there with your medical doctor. And you might think, why? Well, you only see your medical doctor when you're sick. It's the only time he sees you. He doesn't see you at graduation, you don't invite him to all your parties and holidays. Just, doc, you know, my arm hurts, or this hurts, and that's all he hears all day. Now, as a pastor, every week, I kind of hear the same thing. Pastor Bob, just lost my job. 35 years in this company. I have no idea what I'm going to do. My mother just got diagnosed with cancer. Remember how we couldn't have kids and we tried real hard? Well, we just found out the baby's stillborn. That wonderful home we bought two years ago, we're going to lose it in foreclosure. The guy you married me to drinks and he beats me. Every week, people come in the midst of their pain. And they're not looking for a biblical sparring partner. They're not looking for me to solve anything. You know what they want to know deep in their heart? It's what I want to know. Is God with me in this? Does God care? Does he even know what I'm going through? Am I going to make it through this? Am I going to come out the other side? I've been walking with God for 37 years. I've been watching the Christian landscape for 37 years. And I've watched people endure things that I think I could never endure. I've watched people walk through things unimaginable. I've watched the rank and file go through almost everything you could think of. And whenever we go through trials, there's, there's three or four things happen. Believe it or not, and this shouldn't surprise you, some people abandon their faith. Just throw in the towel. They look at what has happened, they see it as a colossal injustice, they blame God, the church, other people, and they're gone. They shouldn't be surprised at that because Jesus said there were some sown, right, where thorns and thistles grew up and cares of this world and trials came and their joy was depleted and never bore fruit. We shouldn't be surprised by that. I've seen others stick with God, maybe stick with the church, but become bitter. You look at the things that have come upon their lives, look at other people that don't experience the same thing, and rather than let a trial become a bridge to making them a better person, they become a bitter person. Trash relationships, and uh, it's not a good thing. Others isolate themselves. Seen this a lot. Try to subdue the pain of trials with addictive substances and behaviors like illicit sex and alcohol and drugs, workaholism. Uh, materialism, anything that'll numb the pain. And then there's others 
who drive right through trials, come out the other side, don't understand it all, but look back years later and say, wow, that was training ground. Wow, God was doing something. He was showing us our faith was real. Now, Monica and I had a trial very early in our Christian experience. You might not even think it's a trial. That's why it says there are various trials. We were young Christians. We got saved in a church. We loved this church. We were kind of being groomed as leaders in the church. Everything was wonderful. The first home group I ever went to, life was good. And the span of about a year and a half, that church fell apart. They had financial problems. It, you know, things were going wrong financially, and uh, the doctrine was bad. And a year and a half later, that church wasn't even there. And there are still people today that I know that are devastated by that experience. Some don't even walk with God. Monica and I were in a church the following Sunday. You're never going to believe this. A year and a half, same thing happened. And so when we start visiting churches, people will be at the door and say, no, you guys can't come here. <laughs> and I remember a nine-month span of visiting a church, not liking it, it's like taking a bath with your socks on. It just doesn't feel right. You probably have experienced it, right? And I remember pulling into a parking lot one time and said, should we move to California or Texas? That's where I, it seems like all the great churches are there. And I said this, and it was strange. I said, doesn't anybody, is there anybody that teaches the Bible verse by verse? I didn't even know what that was. Two months later, we found Calvary Chapel. And I realized that that early trial, which could have shipwrecked us, where we could have lost faith in the church, galvanized our calling to say, you know what, God put us in Delaware County and we want to build a biblical community here. That's how God worked it. He used the trial. See, if we had just stayed in practice, we would have never found that out about ourselves. But when we got punched in the face, we found out our faith was real and there was a God on the other side. Whenever I look at trials, I look at two people. They're my inspiration. One's Peter and the other's Job. Peter was a remarkable man. He was filled with passion and zeal. He was ready to do anything Jesus wanted him to do. One day, Jesus takes him aside. Now, James would have known this because he would have known Peter. And he said, Simon, Simon, that, that's like Marsha, Marsha, right? That means something's important's coming. <laughs> Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you. Sounds like Job. That he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. That your faith should not fail, and when you have returned to me, you would strengthen your brethren. Now, Jesus opens up a whole nother side of trials we never considered, and that is the spiritual side. He opens up the idea that there's an enemy out there, the accuser of the brethren, the, the destroyer, the one that wants to steal, kill, and destroy. Now, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, the scripture says, we wrestle against demons and, you know, in fallen angelic world. It's, it's very strange. Now, what does that mean? When we go through a trial, we kind of get out the demonology book, and we look for the demon of this and the demon of that. No, Jude, or excuse me, uh, Jude writes that, that Michael the archangel didn't say a word to Satan 
when he came to get the body of Moses. That's a realm we don't understand. But Ephesians says we have the armor of God, the word of God. We got prayer, spiritual disciplines. Here's the point I'm trying to make. Whenever you go through a trial, there's two things you need to understand. There is a God who only sees it as a test. There is a God who wants to get elbow deep in your suffering, walk you through it just like Jesus was in the boat with the disciples and make you a better person on the other side. And there is a devil, and yes, he's real in the 20th century, 21st century, who wants to make you ignorant of God's will, impatient with God's will, independent of God's will, and he wants to make an indictment of God's character. Did God really say that? Are you kidding? You're the son of God. You're not going to eat bread? You can turn the stones into bread. You're going to go to the cross? Well, let's go to the pinnacle of the temple. And God would never do this, and God would never allow that, and God would... See how it all goes? Peter, Satan has asked for you, and the idea is he has asked, and it can be granted, that he would sift you like wheat. Uh, when we go to Jerusalem, we go to St. Peter's Church. They, they actually built a church over where Jesus, and, and this is one of the places like in Israel, like Jesus may have been here, could have been here. We know it was in some vicinity, right? This is like a lockdown site. This is where Jesus spent overnight uh, the, the night before his crucifixion. But they built a church over it like they, to, to preserve it. And I think there's a picture on the screen where on the top of the church, there's a cross and a rooster. Can you all see that? I mean, how would you like that to be your legacy for the rest of your life? Like, oh my gosh, you denied Jesus and the rooster crowed, ha, 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 everybody, you know, for all time. Hopefully that's not in heaven. Last time we were there, this is a true story, the team was going down into that prison, and uh, I'm always out looking for, like, the next thing we can do the next trip. So I made it down into this grove way down at the end, and I'm sitting there, and believe it or not, roosters are crowing or whatever they do. And uh, it's not strange or miraculous. There's an average village right across, and they grow chickens, and there's roosters. So, But it's amazing how that happens in that proximity. And I was thinking of Peter, how he was sifted. Tries to cut off Malchus's ear. He, he denies Jesus three times, once to a little girl. He curses. Uh, he takes everybody back fishing. And then I think about what Jesus said. I prayed for you that your faith wouldn't fail, that you'd have real faith, Peter, that you'd drive through these trials, and when you come out the other side, you'd be a pillar, and he was. Peter, do you love these? Lord, you know that I love them. Then feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Go back and do ministry, Peter. What happens when you open the book of Acts? He preaches the first three sermons. 3,000 get saved, 5,000 get saved. And almost everybody's heard of Peter. Guys, sifting will happen in all our lives. God's going to allow trials in our lives. It doesn't say count it all joy if you happen to fall in a trial. See, there's a lot of Christianity that teaches you every Sunday how to trial-proof your life. You know how we child-proof our houses? There's a lot of Christianity that's teaching you how to trial-proof your life. You can't do it. Sifting will happen to each and every one of us. The question is, 
Are we going to tackle it in the flesh? Are we going to lean back on our own understanding? When times get rough, you know, am I going to be Bob Gaglione Incorporated? I'll fix this the way I've always fixed everything else. I'll do it with money. I'll do it with my strengths, with my connections. Or are you going to allow the sifting to have its perfect work? Are you going to let God drain every part of your self-reliance so that he can work and you can see his power? Are you going to become bitter or are you going to become better? In the end, a sifted person is someone who is able, and it's only by God's grace, to reflect back on an experience and a various trial and emerge from that time of trial with a better grasp of what matters most in life. There are scores of people in the Bible that we can look at. One of the things I appreciate about my wife is uh, she's positive by nature and she finds, you know, the, the silver lining in everything. But the thing I love about her is she's rooted in spiritual disciplines. Her devotional life, prayer, reading God's word, uh, intercession, uh, that's what helps us see what God's doing. David, years running from Saul. The rightful king, but he's, he, he's ducking javelins, he's, he's running, even his mighty men turn against him. He becomes the greatest king Israel ever had. Joseph, betrayed by his brothers, in prison, becomes prime minister in Egypt. Moses, prince of Egypt, winds up on the backside of the desert, leads out three million Jews. Remember earlier I said our vision's too small? It really is way too small. Our vision of what God could do in all of our lives is so small, it's pathetic. It really is. I mean, Joseph, left to himself, would have been happy to rule the tribes. Just rule over his brothers, right? God said, no, I got bigger things for you. How about prime minister of Egypt? How about you be, you know, you be like one of the great heroes of the faith? Okay. But how many would sign up for that knowing you'd be thrown in the pit, you know, your brothers would betray you and you'd be thrown in prison? David was happy tending sheep. Moses, happy on the backside of a mountain. God said, no, I got bigger things for you, but you're never going to realize who you are unless you walk through a couple things. The third of you who are smack in the middle of a trial, you're being sifted right now, listen, it doesn't feel good. I know it doesn't. It feels terrible. There's so much wrestling going on. You're trying to figure out why it's happening, what's going on. You know what I've learned? And it took me a while on this one. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally without reproach. And it'll be given to you. Whenever I would go through something in my Christian life, I'd read, I'd ask other people, I'd get on the phone. I was like a symptom manager. And then I stumbled into this, like, uh, really cool thing. I sat down and I said, God, I don't know what the heck's going on. And I'm kind of tired of all the voices. Can you walk me through this? And I got to tell you, I, I could tell you five or six times where I woke up in the morning and God revealed something to me and it just got me through a trial. Here's the thing, my faith isn't your faith. 
We have a common faith, but, but I hear from God different than you hear from God. And so when you're in the middle of a trial, you know, we have to reach out to God. We have to persevere. We have to drive through it. We have to realize that sometimes, and, and we overlook this, sometimes in practice, right, we overestimate who we are. None of you, I do this, people in other churches, none of you guys, right? See, you sit in church and you think, man, I got these big faith muscles, right? Until the water heater blows up and then you're ready to chuck your faith, right? How do I know that's true? Because James writes an entire book about it. He says, oh my gosh, when a rich guy comes into the fellowship, you're putting him right in the front. You don't even talk to the poor guy. And your faith has no works and you can't tame your tongue and, and you're showing partiality and you're gossiping. <laughs> what happened to these faith muscles that we had? We got punched in the face, didn't we? Huh? Yeah. We found out who we are and Jesus said, I prayed for you that you'll get stronger and you'll come out the other side. Just like Peter, you're going to grow. There are so many areas in my life that I need to grow in. Areas where the Holy Spirit really hasn't taken over. Areas that I'm still holding on to my own deal. We're all in this place. And the beautiful thing is, we can count it all joy. Now, it doesn't say, yippee, my trials come. When it says count it all joy, it says, just, just get any amount of joy you can out of this. I know it's hard. Just get any amount of joy. One day you'll look back and you'll say, oh my gosh, God was at work. Peter's one of my heroes, the other is Job. If Job wasn't in the book, in the Bible, we'd be in big trouble. It's like a huge counterweight to every argument the world has. Normally when you fall into a trial, you don't ask God for wisdom, you ask God, why? Peter said, don't count it strange when you fall into a trial as though it were some strange thing. He used the word strange twice, the word trial once. Why? Because every time we fall into a trial, we think it's strange. Why would God let this happen to me? I'm a Christian. I give in the offering. I'm an usher. I serve God. I witness to people. Why, 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 why? Right? Well, Job went through trials and never found out why. Job's friends fell into the trap that we call today, fancy $2 word, the retribution principle. You know it by its popular word, karma. In other words, if good things are happening and you're prospering, you must be really good. And if bad things are happening, you must be really bad. Isn't that what they said to Job? Come on, Job, fess up. No, nobody in the history of the world has had this happen with what's happened to you. And that's why we have Job 1.8 that tells us that, that uh, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, there is none like him in all the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil, and the man who was the most righteous in the world had the most calamity of anyone we've ever known. And that throws karma and the retribution principle out the window. Jesus said, you can't look at life like that. When the disciples looked at the blind man and said, who sinned that this man was born blind, he or his parents, they were going by the retribution principle. That if God is just, he punishes those who do wrong and he prospers those who do right. Now, there's a kernel of truth there. Don't get me wrong. There is sowing and reaping and there is judgment, but we'll leave that for another time. 
Jesus said, neither. Neither one of those sinned, but he never told us why, and you'll never know why. But he said that this man, that the glory of God might happen, behold, be healed. See, Jesus said it's not about the why, it's about God's purpose. See, God is a higher pay grade than you and me, right? His purpose in the earth is beyond our understanding. Uh, John Walton said this. He said, we will never be in a position to evaluate God's justice. In order to appraise the justice of a decision, we must have all the facts, for justice can be derailed if we do not have all the information, right? That's a court. If we try to issue a verdict on God's behalf, we only create a cosmic kangaroo court in which evidence is admitted only when it supports a preconceived verdict. This is the opposite of justice. We cannot reach an affirmation about God's justice through our own limited insight or experience. The book of Job wants to transform how we think about God's world and about our response to human suffering. Jesus basically said, you know what, it's above your pay grade, but this guy was put on the earth blind that one day he would be healed by Jesus. And you're going to say, oh my gosh, that's unfair. The guy was blind for 35 years. Yeah, but he's going to live a billion years in eternity. How about we leave that with God, right? At the end, Job, with no answers to the why question, said, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear. Now I see you face to face. Satan's sifting failed in Job. Satan sifted Job so Job would curse God and die like his wife. Satan sifted Job so he could prove that the human race only serves God because of what God gives him. And Job said, no, I serve God, though he what? Slay me. Job said to Satan, you're dead wrong about God and you're dead wrong about the human race. And he endured and James talks about him. We'll talk about him when we get there. I've said all this to say this. Can't avoid trials. The next time one comes, you just got in the game. And God's going to prove something out about your faith. And and, and, and we've got to talk about this. Look, seasons of life, Ecclesiastes 3, people are born, people die. People mourn, people dance, people go to war, they're killed. This is life. Then there's the fallen world of Genesis 3. There is a God who's elbow deep in your suffering. And he wants to make you a better person like David and like Peter and like Paul. You know, I found out that the antidote for all this is gratefulness. Gratefulness is not thankfulness. Thankfulness is someone did something nice for you and you're like, thanks a lot. That, that was really nice. You're, you're thankful. And gratefulness is way different. Gratefulness to me is I get up in the morning and I sit in my chair and I sit there as long as it takes and I drink a cup of coffee. And uh, it's really like the highlight of my day, right? If that coffee is good, everything's downhill from there. I look out the window, I see some birds. You know, I look at the pictures of my kids. If you slow life down enough, 
You can be grateful. You can be content. And the way it works is when you're grateful and content, you know what happens? It's like if a honeymoon couple went to a hotel room and they opened the door and it was like, you know, something from the Bates Motel, right? They would be aghast. This is our honeymoon suite. We deserve better than this and all that, right? But if I took a man who was in prison for 40 years and put him in the same hotel room, he'd say, oh my gosh, this is wonderful. When we're grateful, we lower expectations of what God should do, is supposed to do, and why didn't he do? In a minute, we're going to sing just a little bit of the song we sang earlier called Take Courage. It says, slow down, take time. Breath, breathe in, he said. He'd reveal what's to come. The thoughts in his mind, always higher than mine, he'll reveal all to come. Take courage, my heart, stay steadfast, my soul. He's in the waiting. He's in the waiting. Hold on to your hope, all your triumphs unfolds. He's never failing. He's never failing. Sing praise, my soul, find strength in joy. Let his words lead you on. Do not forget his great faithfulness. He'll finish all he's begun. And you who hold the stars, who call them each by name, will surely keep your promise to me that I will rise in your victory. And you who hold the stars, who call them each by name, will surely keep your promise to me. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. And one day, he'll give you a new name like he did Peter in the kingdom. Let's stand.